Over the last few weeks, we've had a time of gift giving and gift receiving. And maybe this year, or maybe on a previous year, you've had the experience of opening a gift and wondering to yourself, what is this? What is it for? What am I supposed to do with it? I've had a few of those experiences over the years. Strange objects with no instructions. Well, this morning we are beginning to look together at the book of Revelation. And if you have ever read Revelation, you may have had one of the experiences I've been talking about. As you read it, you may have asked yourself, what is this? And what am I supposed to do with it? I know it's from God, but what is it for? One of the reasons we feel that way is because what we find in this book is very, very unfamiliar to us. I think in general, we are reasonably comfortable dealing with the rest of the Bible. That's especially true of the letters like Romans or Corinthians, for example. Now, we might not live in exactly the same situation as the believers in Rome or Corinth, but I don't think we have major trouble applying the teaching of those letters to ourselves. And when we read the history books of the Old Testament, or the New Testament Gospels, or the book of Acts, we realize they're telling us the story of God's dealings with his people. In the history of Israel, and in the life of Jesus, and in the life of the early church. And even if poetry is not our thing in particular, I think we can still have some appreciation for the poetic parts of the Bible. But when we come to the book of Revelation, it just seems weird. The first few chapters aren't so bad, but after chapter 3, we start to meet some very odd creatures. Dragons, beasts with seven heads, Giant locusts with crowns on and human faces. There are lots of earthquakes and lightning and smoke. There are rivers of blood. There's a prostitute who turns out to be a city. And there is a bride who turns out to be a different city. It's all very unfamiliar. And that unfamiliarity can cause us to just leave it alone and go back to more familiar territory like Romans. Another reason we can be wary of this book is because we may have discovered that Christians disagree about how to interpret Revelation. If you've ever looked into those disagreements or been exposed to them, that can put you off this book. We can end up feeling, well, if people who have studied this come to such different conclusions about it, how am I ever going to make sense of it? I'd better just leave it alone. Well, if you have been put off Revelation, either by its unfamiliarity or by the fact that Christians disagree over it, let me tell you two things that I think will help. First of all, with regard to the unfamiliarity... It's helpful for us to realize that what is bizarre to us 
was actually a very common way of writing in New Testament times. It was a standard genre of literature. It was called apocalyptic. Why is it helpful for us to know that? It's helpful because it shows us this style of writing is not unique to the book of Revelation. We have tons of material from the time written in the same kind of style. And when scholars have looked at those apocalyptic writings, they have found lots of common characteristics. They have found that images and symbols tended to be used in standard kinds of ways. Now that doesn't mean all those apocalyptic writings were from God. Just as every history book or every poem isn't from God. But those other apocalyptic books show us that while Revelation gives us a unique message from God, it does not give it in a unique format. The first readers of this book would not have been bewildered by it at all. They would have been as comfortable with it as with a book of poetry, like the Psalms, or a book of history like Acts. And that means that without too much difficulty, you and I can begin finding our way around this book. When we get a hand on some of the basic ways that apocalyptic writing works, we can begin to make sense of all the images that initially just seem weird. That's the first thing I think is helpful for us. And then with regard to the fact that Christians have disagreed and do disagree about this book, One reason that happens is because people take one genuine insight into this book and they try to make it the one key to interpreting the book. So, for example, some people have noticed as they've read this book that many of the descriptions of evil here could be applied to Rome in the first century. And they have concluded that this book is only about Rome in the first century. Others have realized this book talks about the end of history. And they have concluded it only talks about the end of history. Others have seen how some of the news today seems to fit what's described in this book. And they conclude Revelation is specifically describing the time you and I live in. Now the fact is, those are all genuine insights into this book. It does have relevance for today. And for the future. And it had relevance for those who read it in the first century. Many of the disagreements have come about because people have taken a good insight into this book and they've tried to make the whole book fit that insight to the exclusion of everything else. You and I will get much more out of this book if we realize it's a book for all times. What about its message then? Well, it's always hard to sum up a biblical book in one phrase. But of all the titles that have been suggested for Revelation, I think the best one is this. The Lamb wins. 
Now, that is not original to me, but it does get, I think, at the heart of the message of this book. And the fact that the Lamb wins is meant to give us great encouragement as we live for God today. And if you're interested in doing a little extra investigation besides what we do together on Sundays, I recommend this little book, which, as you'll see, is coincidentally also called The Lamb Wins. And again, as you can see, it really is a fairly small book. It's broken down into little sections, and it's not a technical commentary. It isn't going to baffle you or get you bogged down in the details. As it says on the front, it's a brief guided tour through Revelation. I think this book will reinforce what we learn together on Sundays, and it will help you to apply what you read. So I'm going to put at the end this copy on the table at the back. You can have a look at it, but please don't take it away. If you'd like one, there will be a sheet at the back. Just put your name on the sheet, and I'll order a copy for you. And the more we order, the less the price will be. So I encourage you to have a look at that at the end. But now finally, let's actually turn and read some of Revelation. You probably don't need page numbers. It's at the very back. But just in case, it's on page 1233 in the Church Bible and page 1912 in the large print Bibles. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God's word. I mentioned at the start the experience of opening a gift And wondering what it is. And if we come to this book asking ourselves, what have we here? What is this? 
then we're going to find some helpful answers in these opening verses. Actually, four answers. First of all, this book reveals transcendent realities. Look again at verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. When we read the word revelation in our Bibles, it's translating the Greek word apocalypse. And what an apocalypse claims to do is to unveil or disclose things that are unseen to us, but which are very, very real. The word for those kind of things is transcendent things. And here we have an apocalypse given to us not just by anyone, but by God himself. It comes to us with all of God's authority and all of God's trustworthiness. This book takes us behind the scenes of human history. It shows us the powers that are driving human history. It gives us the divine, eternal perspective on history. And so one of the main purposes of this book is to help us see the world differently. To change our perception of what's actually going on in the world. This book is here to help us understand invisible realities. So that we can live in line with those realities. And we need this because every day of our lives, you and I are confronted with images of human power. We see on our TV screens world leaders arriving for big summits, getting out of limousines and signing treaties together. We see images all the time of lawless power, terrorists beheading captured journalists and aid workers. We're confronted all the time with images of human success. Celebrities spending millions on their wedding bash. Celebrities getting awards at the Oscars. We see businessmen buying football clubs. And at the same time, we see the church apparently struggling. Despised in many parts of the world. Those are the visions of reality you and I are presented with every day. But Revelation is here to challenge those visions of reality. It's here to give us a visionary detox. It's here to show us how the world really is and how it will be. And so if you are a Christian who struggles with theology the way it's explained in the book of Romans, for example, if you have trouble following the form of a step-by-step argument that seems hard to grasp, then you can look forward to Revelation. Because this book is going to give you the same truth as Romans, but it's going to give it to you in vivid, striking pictures. Images that will stick in your mind. You won't be able to forget what you see in this book. 
If you have trouble imagining creation being liberated from its bondage to decay, then revelation is going to help you. If you have trouble picturing God's wrath, then revelation will help you with that too. If you have trouble seeing through this world's attractive lies, again, revelation will help you. It will show you what's behind those lies. This book will give you unforgettable pictures of the truth. In verse 1, we're told how this revelation got to us. God the Father gave it to Jesus, who sent his angel to John. This is almost certainly the same John who wrote John's gospel and the three New Testament letters of John. He's writing towards the end of the first century AD. We'll learn more about John next week. But notice what verse 3 tells us about this revelation John received. We're told in verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, And take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. You'll notice that here, the revelation is called a prophecy. And we're told we are blessed if we pay attention to this book, and if we respond to it. The phrase translated, take it to heart, is literally, keep it. Blessed are those who keep what is written in this book, who do what it calls them to do. That tells us this book is not here to excite armchair speculation about the end of the world. This book is here to impact our lives today. Mark's gospel tells us that when Jesus began his public ministry, his message in those early days was, the kingdom of God has come near. Meaning, not the kingdom is going to arrive soon, but the kingdom is already arriving in me. And Jesus went on to say, repent and believe this good news. And we find something similar here in verse 3. The time is near has a sense of the time has drawn near. The things in this book are already underway. And that leads us into verse 4, which tells us this book is a letter. We've noticed that this book is apocalyptic. It's also been called prophecy. But we mustn't miss this. It has a very typical letter opening. Recently, we looked at Paul's letter to the Romans. And we find this opening to Paul's letter to the Romans. It begins... Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. And then we read, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in Revelation in verse 4 we read this, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. 
You see the familiar format, the similar format to Romans. And Revelation also has a letter ending. So this book is not some kind of treatise that's detached from real life and real people. It's a letter written to specific first century churches. Why is this worth noticing? It's worth noticing simply because if you and I interpret this book in a way that would have made no sense to these original readers, then we can be quite sure our interpretation is nonsense. This letter was written to encourage first century Christians in their first century situation. God intended these people to get the message of this book. So you and I cannot read this book as if it's only concerned with what's in our newspapers today. Or only concerned with future events at Jesus' return. Whatever this book might mean for us today and whatever it will mean for people in the future, we have to start by asking what did it mean for first century Christians? How would they have understood this? And then, having tried to answer that question, then we can go on to ask, what does it mean for us today? And we can be very sure its meaning today is not going to be massively different from its meaning then. So if you remember nothing else from this introduction, at least remember this. This book was written to real people. It was written to encourage them in the real struggles of life. It was not written so we could produce charts and diagrams about the end of the world. But there's more to see in verse 4. You'll notice this letter is addressed to the seven churches. That's very significant because there were more than seven churches in the province of Asia in the first century. And so while it is true that John is writing to real churches and he will name them later in the chapter, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Well, it's true John is writing to real churches. He has carefully chosen seven churches. Not five, not eight, not eleven. Why? Well, seven is a very common number in this book. We'll see that numbers are highly significant in Revelation. And the most significant number in the book is the number seven. It's used actually throughout the Bible to indicate fullness or completeness. You'll notice verse 4 also mentions the seven spirits, or it could be translated the sevenfold spirit. That seems to be referring to the one Holy Spirit who operates with full divine power. And when John refers to seven churches, he's showing this letter actually is for the whole church, the church in its completeness. So John is writing to specific first century churches 
who are representative of the church. And that's why we can apply this book to the church in New York and Berlin and London and Pelsall. This letter is for every local manifestation of the one church of Jesus Christ. And this letter deals with Jesus' victory, past, present, and future. In fact, we could say, as we indicated in our title, The Lamb Wins, we could say this is the main emphasis of the book. Look again at verses 5 to 7. We're told that grace and peace to us, grace and peace come to us from the Father, the Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. All of this is going to be developed as the book goes on. But notice in verse 5, Jesus is the faithful witness. Again and again in Revelation, you and I are going to be called to be faithful witnesses. And here at the beginning, we're told that Jesus is our model. His faithfulness led him all the way to death and out the other side of death to rule. The end of verse 5 is describing Jesus' position today. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. After his resurrection, Jesus told his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He reigns today. The only difference between now and the future is that today there is opposition to Jesus' reign. There will be a future day when all opposition is finally ended. But his reign has been a fact since the day of his resurrection from the dead. That's the big picture. Jesus' faithfulness led to his worldwide reign. But look how his faithfulness applies to us who are Christians at the end of verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We're going to see as this book goes on that it is full of cosmic conflict. It's full of armies and kings. But at the heart of it is Christ's love for his people. He has loved us. And how did he express that love? By dying in our place. That's what by his blood means. We're going to hear lots about judgment in this book. But when Jesus first came to earth, he did not come to bring judgment. He came to suffer judgment on our behalf. 
We're going to see plenty of wrath poured out in this book. But if we are trusting in Jesus, we don't need to fear God's wrath. Jesus has experienced every last bit of it in our place. The horrors we are going to see in this book are what Jesus bore for us to free us from our sins. So if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you have nothing to fear from what you read in this book. We often think of Revelation as being about the future. But here at the beginning, we find out everything in this book is built on an event in the past. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection to reign. Jesus' work on the cross is the fixed point that determines the rest of history. And if we are trusting in him, we have been freed from our sins. And, verse 6 says, we are a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. We are a kingdom. That means God's reign can be seen in us. Men and women who live to worship him in the power of his Holy Spirit. And we are priests, all of us. In the Old Testament, the priest's job was to represent God to the people and the people to God. Now that's our job. We represent God to the people through our witness. And we represent the people to God through our prayers. That is priestly work. And it's priestly work that is no longer just for a group of professional holy men. It's work for every Christian. So Christ's victory has freed us from our sins in the past. It means we are a kingdom and priests in the present. And we live expecting his return in the future. That's what verse 7 is about. It is a promise for the future. One of the key things we'll discover about this book is that it is constantly drawing on the Old Testament. There are more Old Testament references in Revelation than any other New Testament book. It draws up masses and masses of Old Testament material and it shows how that is being fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And one writer writer has called Revelation the climax of prophecy. That's a helpful way to think of it. God's prophetic word through Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah, all of it is developed here in Revelation. And its fulfillment is described here in Revelation. That's what's happening in verse 7. Verse 7 is a combination of two passages from Daniel and Zechariah. It tells us that one day every eye will see Jesus. The one who was previously lifted up to die in rejection, pierced on the cross, He will be lifted high as the victorious returning king. And we're also told 
His return will not be a day of joy and celebration for everyone in this world. For many, it will be a day of sorrow and torment. His return in victory will not mean life for them. It will mean death. This letter is about the victory of Jesus Christ. And it is the word of the sovereign Lord of history. Look again at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. God is saying, I am Lord of the beginning, and I am Lord of the end, and I am Lord of everything in between. I am God from start to finish. This statement by God occurs again at the end of the book. It's like book ends to this revelation. And it is here to reassure us our God is the sovereign Lord of history. We know what he's done in the past and we can trust him for the present and the future. Isn't this the reassurance we need? For the first week of a new year, our God is eternal. He is almighty. And he is in control. We're going to renew our trust in him together as we sing before we turn to the Lord's table. God of the ages.